are listening to Women and Music by Goldhand Girls, and we are your hosts, Alexa Ace and Michaela Chandler. Our guest today is someone we admire so much, from interviewing Destiny's Child to wandering around Pittsburgh with Wiz Khalifa, and having some of the biggest names on and off the stages as her colleagues, Gurge Bossy. Let me say that again for the people in the back. This episode features the iconic woman in power, Gurge Bossy. I've personally had the experience of working with Gurge, and every day since, I swear, I have been so inspired. I'll never forget how valued she made me feel. Gurge Bossy is the head of music marketing and partnerships at SiriusXM. Her accomplishments include leading as the senior director of artist marketing at Pandora Radio to being the senior director of digital marketing at Republic Records. If you've ever needed a lesson in how to kick off your career in music business, grab your notepad, a cup of coffee, and buckle up for the advice of a lifetime. From the executive making moves herself, Gurge Bossy. Hi. Hi. Hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm great, thank you. Even happier to be speaking to you. Well, we are so excited. <laughs> we're we're like giddy on the other we are. end. <laughs> so go ahead and um tell us about yourself. We are speaking with Gurge Bossy today. And uh Gurge, what do you do? Um, I am the head of music marketing and partnerships at SiriusXM. Ooh, that is like a super fancy title. <laughs> what all does that entail? Um, well, it's very similar to what I was doing at Pandora. Uh, so just to kind of give you a little bit of history and the transition of, of jumping over from Pandora to SiriusXM, uh, Sirius acquired Pandora at the beginning of last year. And so for the most part of last year was spent transitioning um, and getting to know SiriusXM and how they operate, familiarizing ourselves with their platform. And by the end of 2019, um, they had approached me to see if I would transition over uh, as they were going through a reorg of a um, department within the programming team uh, and asked if I would head up the music marketing and partnerships team, which is a very small team. There's only three of us, um, wow. but it felt like the next step. Um, and I was really excited to take it on and, and learn something new. Um, so yeah, it basically entails two things, two main things. We're doing a lot of traffic control basically internally, and we're very much the connective tissue between a lot of teams. So we represent all the programmers at SiriusXM and all the guests that they have on their channels and all the content that they broadcast. It's our responsibility to make sure that's being communicated to the wider marketing organization, social, digital content, PR, um, how are we promoting this? What assets and tools and access to the talent do we have to promote it? So that's one part of the job. And then the other is maintaining and nurturing the relationships with all of the artists and the managers where we have partner channels with them and we have a number of them. So, um, you know, those include Pearl Jam, U2, uh, LL Cool J with Rock the Bells Radio, uh, Eminem with Shade 45, um, you know, we work with Garth Brooks, Dave Matthews Band. And then we also have a lot of temporary pop-up channels 
Um, you know, so last week we just launched Beastie Boys, Michael Jackson, Bob Marley, Prince, Coldplay, Queen. So it's our responsibility to work with management um, to make sure their brand is represented appropriately in any of the marketing materials or efforts that we put forward to promote the channel. Uh, so we really represent them as like a layer of management inside the SiriusXM ecosystem and work with programming and give guidance to marketing and, and social on, you know, any sensitivities with imagery, um, wording, language, timing, you know, making sure that the band are in um, in sync with us with when we're posting something, reposting, putting page behind something. Um, so that's where we, that takes up, I would say like it's a 50-50 split of everything that we do. And then even in, in between that, we're still reviewing and filtering marketing materials that represent our channels and, you know, making sure that we have the right artist or song positioned in all of our printed materials as well, like auto dealerships or, you know, the the car units that are sold at Best Buy and Amazon. Wow. Uh, so it's a whole melting wow. pot of responsibilities. So it kind of sounds like you're the bridge you act as the bridge between the artist team and their listeners or future fans would you say that was yeah. kind of accurate yeah absolutely especially if those listeners are you know discovering or listening uh, to that content on our platform on Sirius XM we're really responsible for shaping how and where they show up and what does that listener experience look like the programming team are phenomenal, right? So, you know, they take care of programming the music and any commentary and the guests in between. Um, but we have, uh, you know, we have a seat at the table for how that content is promoted and discovered. If you're listening to SiriusXM, how do you know that there's a Coldplay temporary channel? Um, and that really, you know, falls on us in the collaboration with a, a few other teams. Yeah. So, so really like growing up, so we knew that you grew up in London, but we knew that you also kind of got your first uh, foot in the door with writing in the music industry. And I think that's very important to um, represent because I did as well. And, uh, and, and, you know, just yeah. even having these little um, small, uh, what do I say, uh, features over mm -hmm. um, artists when they were having like a, a gig at, you know, so-and-so venue and, and yeah. saying how they, or a, re a review, how that gig was. And, mm -hmm. and you never know where your writing will end up. So how mm -hmm. did writing start your career? Your Yeah, start your career in the music industry. Um, well, there were like three things that I knew I absolutely loved growing up uh, as a teenager, and those were chocolate, music, and reading. <laughs> like I was, and, and probably TV as well. Uh, so <laughs> I'm the youngest of five, <laughs> yeah, I'm the youngest of five siblings, and you know, uh, just because of that, I never had like my own stereo or my own like cassette player or anything. So I was always at the mercy of whatever my siblings were listening to. And then um, on one side of my bedroom wall would be my brother um, blasting drum bass and, and jungle music because he was a, a DJ, a vinyl DJ. He used to DJ for a lot of pirate music stations. Uh, so I was exposed to that during the height of it, during rave culture. And then, you know, my older sisters were really into Madonna and Prince and like yes. really great pop music. Um, and then also 
rock music as well. So Nirvana and Stone Roses and Oasis and Blur. I grew up, I think, at a very fortunate, rich time in music, especially in England, because it was during the height of Britpop, uh, the explosion of boy bands, um, and then also the height of, you know, the underground uh, dance and rave culture and music scene there as well that had evolved into drum and bass by the time I was old enough to to know anything about it. So I think I had, you know, the fortune of being exposed to a very eclectic and diverse mixture of uh, music and genres. And um, I used to have a paper round where I would deliver newspapers in my neighbourhood and I'd get paid five pounds for it. And every two weeks I would take that money and I would go to the local... Um, store and buy a copy of smash hits magazine and i would oh. read it cover to cover and i grew up reading it because my siblings had it so it's like this very cool magazine that i would always see in their bedrooms and i used to write letters to the editor and um say i'm gonna work here one day and like please publish my letter um and one day i, I you know i I wrote endless amounts of letters to all of the magazines that I loved reading and all of the labels that I, I knew of just by looking at the CD sleeves and cassette lead sleeves of my favorite acts. And um, I landed an internship at Smash Hits. Uh, and prior to that, I landed an internship at Island Records in the publicity department. So for a whole summer, I did an internship and I was working with a lot of the MCA acts were going through Island Records. So that meant I worked on the first ever American Pie soundtrack. And so with that, I remember the first thing that I ever did was working with a band who were playing their first gig in the UK called Blink-182. Um, so I had to like do a press junket with them and like take journalists to their show to review it in this tiny, tiny venue in London. And did that again with, you know, the likes of like Newfound Glory and that whole kind of like pop punk era um and so my internship at smash hits by the end of it they'd asked me to come back again another two weeks and at the end of that two weeks they offered me a junior writing gig um and at the time I was in college so in England you go to high school until you're 16 and then you go to college from 16 to 18 and then from 18 to 21 you go to university so I was in the middle of a college course and I remember my editor offering me this job and he was like, this is what you would be going to university for. So why don't you just like skip that and work here? I was like, done, deal. <laughs> done, <laughs> so yeah, I was 17 when I got my, my first job at Smash Hits. And the editor um, that I worked for was the editor that I used to write letters for wow. when I was like doing that paper round. And he left, he left Smash Hits a year later and he went on to work for Simon Fuller, who um, created American Idol, and he uh, managed the Spice Girls. And I believe to this day, he I think he still manages Victoria and David Beckham. Yeah. Um, so it's when the dot-com was really booming. A lot of magazines were folding. And he had this incredible idea to launch a brand called Pop World, which would be a TV show, a website, and a magazine. And so... Uh, I came in as a writer across all three and Gavin Reeves, the editor from Smash Hits, showed up at the offices on my 18th birthday and he's like, I want to take you out for lunch for your birthday. And I was like, okay. And he offered me a job at Pop World um, and I really never looked back since then. He definitely uh, mentored me and gave me a tremendous amount of like musical education. He would show up every month with a stack of CDs and he'd be like, you need to listen to all of these over the next month. Wow. And he's like, I want you to, 
And I would because he wanted me to understand the origins of all of the bands that I loved during that time, mm-hmm. who yeah. they were influenced by. And so, you know, he would give me CDs by The Clash or, you know, old Beastie Boys CDs and The Cure and Morrissey and The Smiths. So it really helped me understand, like, the roots of everything that I loved at that time and who they were inspired by. What so he played a massive, massive role in my life. What wow. a memorable birthday. Like, that is yeah. just, <laughs> like, he gave you the gift of kicking off your career and he didn't even know yeah. it. How many letters yeah. do you think that you wrote to um, to Pop World before you, before you got recognized? Well, I wrote letters to, you know, all the magazines and all the labels that I could find uh, addresses for. I mean, it was, you know, definitely like between like 60 and 70. Um, it's whatever address I could find, I would like repurpose the same letter and write to them. And, and, and I landed those two internships, the one at Ireland and the one at Smash It. So, it, you know, persistence pays off. Uh, this is like pre-internet before you can like even look up anything. So I don't even remember where I got all this from, um, oh. but it worked and it felt like a, it felt like a dream come true and it really opened a lot of doors for me. So, you know, I went on to Pop World and it was definitely still during like the glory years of CDs selling millions of copies in the first week. And the reason that's significant is because the budgets looked completely different at that time to what they look like now. So when I was 18, I was traveling the world interviewing pop stars because labels had the money to send journalists abroad to go do that. And magazines had the budgets to go fly three people out to go do an interview and a photo shoot for an hour. Um, so I feel very fortunate that, you know, my timing was right in the middle of all of that or at the tail end of it because it really changed after that. Wow. And music has such just like a deep history within itself. And that you were able to discover and kind of learn the history through the origins, like of these yeah. bands that were on the rise. There were some of those bands that you wrote about, well, uh, or even that you got to go see. Yeah, I mean, I some of my like most fond memories of working at Pop World were, um, or, and even after that, when I was freelancing for magazines, I remember because all my friends were in the music industry. So they were either publicists at labels um, or other writers. And it was a really, um, you know, collaborative space where people were throwing gigs to each other if they were freelance. And they're like, I can't handle this. Or I'm like, double book, do you want this really well-paying gig or article? Um, Or, you know, publicists would hit me up and say, hey, I have an hour with Destiny's Child to get, all their UK press done for their next album because they're not going to do international press. They're not going to be here during album release week. And I remember uh, Columbia Records flew me to LA and I stayed at the, uh, gosh, where was it? Sunset Sunset Marquee for a week. And they were like, during this week, we're going to phone you and tell you where and when you're going to have three hours with Destiny's Child. It's going to be during this week. We don't know when. So we're just going to put you up in a hotel and pay for you to be in LA for a week. And I was like, this is fucking magical. <laughs> so, you know, I got to do that. <laughs> it was great. I mean, it was, they were amazing. They're, you know, very well rehearsed, beautiful dolls, basically. Um, but yeah, I got to do stuff like that and like fly to Canada and go on a shopping mall tour with Avril Lavigne or, um, you know, go on a tour bus with Good Charlotte in the middle of Bakersfield, California. Um, so it was all these, you know, wonderful experiences. Um, 
a very I think like I I don't think that goes on as much now. Wow. To be honest with you. And being 18, 19 years old around these high level celebrities at the time, like how did you carry yourself and compose yourself around like such a list profile artists? Yeah. I think I was just so enthusiastic about the opportunity um, that I wasn't, I don't remember being nervous. I remember being very, very curious always. Mm. I always wanted to know, like, how did you wake up and come up with the hook for that fucking song? How, like, where does, where in your brain, like, what makes, what makes it possible for you to, like, write this song? Or, like, I was fascinated by, like, the inspiration behind songs because I just felt like you know when you hear a song and you hear the hook or you hear the chorus and then you can sing it by the end of it like that's incredible and that's fascinating so I was always wanting to know like the origins of that and I always found that um music was a form of therapy like it resonated a lot with me because as someone who grew up in you know an Indian family and in England you don't really like talk about feelings or whatever it is and so music was kind of like my safe place for that of like you know feeling teenage angst or like heartbreak or whatever it is and hearing Morrissey sing about that I used to feel like he'd crept inside my head during my dreams and and written a song about I was like oh my god this song's exactly about me (laughs) like how did he know (laughs) yeah exactly so you went from writing to then transitioning into A&R. So what made your move? Um, I had a blog that I used to write about, um, you know, all the acts and all the musicians and bands that I would see in New York at the time. And I would still freelance for UK magazines and interview people in New York for them. So I was managed to kind of like maintain myself financially, sustain myself. Um, and through a friend of a friend, I got a job interview at TVT Records and they asked if I would, (laughs) the job offer was contingent on me answering the phones for a month at reception to make the label sound really (laughs) professional (laughs) and that I recorded everyone's voicemails. Uh, so I did. And then I ended up working with this wonderful, wonderful man called Lenny Johnson, who was the head of rock. A&R at TVT Records and now he manages incredible songwriters and producers and he's got on to do wonderful things but he gave me like my first training in A&R I'd never done it before that and he taught me how an album is made and you know facilitating the logistics of that and dealing with the managers of huge producers like Matt Squire who you know shapes that whole emo pop era like he worked with at that time when we were working with him he was working with fallout boy panic at the disco uh taking back sunday all of those kind of like warp tour bands um so i got like an inside look of like what does it look like to make an album and like which studios do we use and like who's really um you know great at mastering this type of music and I really appreciated that because he gave me lots of opportunities to kind of like hone my skill. And he would send me off as well. Like I would be out probably four to five nights a week. I lived in the Lower East Side. And fortunately, a lot of the music venues were right around there in the Lower East Side or very easy to get to. So I was constantly going to shows all the time. Um, it was in the era of MySpace being a popular destination to to find bands. Um 
and yeah, I had like, you know, a great time there. I got to fly down. I remember the one, the first project that I had to fly out on was to go to Pittsburgh and I had to go check out this kid called Wiz Khalifa who'd had two write-ups in Rolling Stone magazine. And my boss was like, I want you to go down there. And I was like, okay. I didn't know anything. So I went down, I went to a show. It was amazing. I'd never seen anything like it. And his manager and his mum and Wiz drew, drove me around Pittsburgh in their little car and t- took me to his studio and just like walked me through, you know, his vision as a musician, as a writer, as a rapper, played me his music, showed me around Pittsburgh, took me to the Andy Warhol Museum, it, you know, took me to get a Primanti Brothers sandwich. Uh, <laughs> and that was so magical. Wait. Where's Khalifa took you to the Andy Warhol Museum? <laughs> yeah, I think it was him, his manager. Like, they just dropped me off and I was like, I'm Casual. good here. I'll see you in a few hours. <laughs> um, but we were the first label to have a have a deal on the table with him. And uh, they went with Warner Brothers instead. And they, you know, I remember them phoning me being like, we love you. We're so sorry. Um, you know, it came down to money, obviously. And we, we didn't beat out this huge major label and he had a lot of buzz around him. So it made sense. Yeah. So walk us through a day in the life of um, of someone who works in A&R. Um, and describe what A&R means for those that don't yes, know. Yes, yes, very important. Yeah, so you're, you're, I mean, I think the myth of what people think A&R is, is probably a little bit different, right? It's not just about um, discovering new talent. Uh, that's certainly, you know, the most popular part that everyone knows about. But you're also responsible for identifying the right producer um, to pair with this band or this artist to help develop their sound, help them figure out what their sound is. Um, You are responsible for having a fantastic network of um, songwriters, uh, top line writers, or, you know, there's, there's a whole variation of the type of writers that are available out there. Do you need someone to just come in and write the top line? Do you need someone to like really ghostwrite everything? Um, so I learned a lot about that through Lenny, through Lenny Johnson, who was, you know, very well connected in that scene. Um, so I wasn't as hands-on with identifying the right producer or the writer, but I did have um, the opportunity and was empowered to like sign bands and go scout them. And, you know, the typical... D- no one day looks like the next one, but I can, I can tell you some of the responsibilities and opportunities at that time of being an A&R person. And that's like in 2005, 2006, was going to uh, a music festival in the middle of Austin, Texas called South by Southwest and um, seeing a band playing someone's backyard and coming back and being like, I want to sign this band. Um, so there was a lot of that that went on and that feels so distant and alien now because that's not how bands are discovered anymore but that's literally how it would work I would go to shows after shows after shows and and report back the next day and say this was great and here's what was great about it and here's what the audience reaction was and you know here's the potential of it is this something that we want to pursue shall we bring them in shall we you know talk to their manager uh sniff out the situation so it was a lot of that uh in addition to a lot of administrative work you know, I had to handle 
all of the POs, I had to manage the recording budgets, I had to process the invoices, work with accounts payable, chase them for, you know, unpaid invoices and getting angry emails or voicemails from managers and producers that hadn't been paid. So um, there was a lot of that work as well. It wasn't all just kind of like going out. There were a lot Mm. of late nights, but there was also really long days of doing a lot of, um, you know, data input. I think that's so important to mention because I think that, you know, the glamorized vision of A&R literally is just going out to gigs and saying, oh, I found this band. I'm going to take it back to my label and make them big. And that's not it. Right. So especially right. in um, 2020, we want to we want to know what your opinion is of A&R. And we hear a lot that A&R doesn't exist in the music industry anymore because of social media. What is your input on that? I don't think it's, I just don't think it's as black and white as that. Um, So I think, I don't think that's like a, I think it's a bit of a false statement. Um, You know, social media hasn't replaced A&R. There's still plenty of A&R people out there. I think that what A&R looks like is just different and it's evolved. Um, So you have more portals of entry as an artist to, you know, have your music discovered. First of all, there's just more platforms and there are more tools for musicians to market themselves and publish their own music through distributors and and get it on all the platforms. They don't necessarily need an A&R person for that. So I think where an A&R person steps in now is probably a little bit further along in the process of um, how developed or not an artist is. Mm -hmm. And that is related to social media. So as an independent act, you know, it's easier now than ever to take yourself from one to 50 and then an A&R person discover you would take you from 50 to 100 with a major label. And what I mean by that is that there are all these tools out there. So whether it's um, getting your music published on all of the DSPs through a distributor or label services like Cobalt or DistroKid or TuneCore, um, then you also have access to tools like every streaming service has artist tools for them to either connect with their audiences or to understand how their music is performing on the platform and where it's being discovered and like walking them through all of the data and the analytics. Um, And then you, you know, you also have this unfiltered opportunity to connect directly to your audience and explain who you are and your vision and your music and like, represent yourself to the fullest without it being shaped or molded by a label so you have every opportunity to be really authentic and talk directly and tweet back and forth and comment back and forth with fans so you're getting real-time feedback right you know more than ever and you know more quickly than ever if people like what you're putting out there and I think that didn't exist before um it was always the A&R person leading that part of it of like acknowledging that we think that you're great or, you know, if you've toured with a band and you've been discovered that way, I think that's like the closest equivalent. But now you have, like I said, you kind of have like the entire world at your fingertips to speak to us. So I think it doesn't eliminate A&R. I think that where A&R are implemented is just in a different spot. Does that make sense? I agree. Because we're very used to people saying, um, you know, Anor doesn't exist. Like uh, people just discover people off social media because of their number count. You know what I mean? It's And it's, I think that 
I think that what you're saying is is very important because it's not just about that. A and R is still very relevant, and and, and yeah, I, and social media is relevant, right? Is. Social media absolutely plays a role because the form of discovery now, or you know, has been for a while, is peer to peer. It's it's sharing um, on your social network because everyone wants to be, you know, the the trendsetter of like right. look what I'm listening to first right. and sharing it with mm-hmm. their friends so there's this like new built-in um everyone wants to be the DJ um and you're going to trust your friends and be like oh I want to listen to that I want to know what that is and that's easier to do now more than ever um so but again it doesn't eliminate A&R it just means the discovery is happening in more places and in different places but A&R are needed because I, like I was saying before they have that network of songwriters and producers to help you graduate from being the bedroom producer to being the next Calvin Harris right you don't know what you don't know and if you're young and you're inexperienced you may need uh, the experts to come in and help reframe how you're thinking about writing um, or how you're thinking about producing or help you kind of like find your style and your genre and your lane. So they play a critical role in in music today. And I think that they'll continue to. It may look different, but I don't think they'll ever go away. Yeah. And I think it's important to mention too that like the way you represent yourself as an artist on social media really fucking matters especially if you are unsigned and if you are looking to get signed um, because following trend only gets you so far yes. until, yes. you know, and, and until that originality shines through and it's mm-hmm. like, wow, that is someone I actually want to put my energy and effort into. At what point did you transition to Atlantic and what are some of those musicians you helped develop? So TVT was, um, they had filed for chapter 11 and went bankrupt. So I was there until the bitter end. And at that time, it was very clear that everyone was obviously being laid off and leaving. Um, I still had this music blog that I used to write about, um, the New York music scene and all the acts that I would see. And uh, a friend of mine had forwarded my resume to someone at Atlantic Records because I had an opening at that time. And the person hiring uh, was familiar with my name because they'd seen my blog and they'd spoken about it. So when I stepped into Atlantic, it was 2008, and I had a meeting with this wonderful woman, again, someone who definitely uh, was one of my biggest champions in my career and really gave me a lot of confidence, and her name was Livia Tortella, and she was the GM of the label and the president of the label then, and still to this day is Judy Greenwald, and they really believed in me and championed me, so um, I joined the digital team, I joined the digital marketing team, so I wasn't in a and I just transferred into a completely different team, and that's because from the top down, the label were embracing the importance of websites, digital, streaming. They were really early in contrast to a lot of other major labels. And so they recognized that they needed to invest more time and resources into their artist-owned websites and the content that was going out on those websites. So they built a studio and I had full access to the studio with someone who was operating the camera and editing and someone else who was handling sound. And I got an hour with any artist under Warner Music Group that was coming through New York, whether they were on Atlantic or not. 
it was my responsibility to come up with an hour of content to film with them. So whether that was recording acoustic versions or a live stream with fans or whether that's doing an interview or a retrospective piece and that content would live exclusively on the artist's websites so we were building equity for them on their own websites as opposed to investing everything in follow accounts on myspace or you know doing video interviews on stereo gum and then monetizing an interview of your artist by slapping a pre-roll on it so that was kind of like the the vision behind that studio was to have exclusive content for the artists on their own website and then to have the opportunity of breaking and premiering their own news and music to fans. Um, so I was leading digital content, a lot of editorial content, and then I was given my own roster of acts to um, do digital marketing for. And, you know, I'd never done digital marketing prior to that. I think, again, I was just very fortunate um, being someone who's quite digitally savvy and obsessed with the internet and spending a lot of time on it and being young, that it lent itself very well to this job. Um, so, yeah, I worked with I worked with Sonny Moore when we transitioned him into Skrillex. And that was, I mean, I'll never forget that. I remember looking every day because I used to manage all of his socials. And I remember looking at his YouTube channel I remember t telling his um, booking agent, because his booking agent and I would go back and forth every day, because every day he'd be like, this day sold out, this day sold out. And I'd have to like update the tour dates on all of his website, like across all his socials and his email blasts. And I remember talking to him about the view count on YouTube going up, like at an alarming rate on a daily basis. And we were witnessing something happening. We were like literally witnessing the birth and phenomenon of Skrillex. Um, so that was really, really cool to kind of like be there from inception and watch that happen. Um, same with Licky Lee. We were, you know, I was fortunate enough to be working with her and as part of the team that first signed her. Um, and I just got to work with, you know, really great acts like Chromio and Justice and CeeLo. And it was during the time um, when we signed Bruno Mars and we signed Ed Sheeran. So I got to work with them a little bit and Janelle Monet. Uh, and so I got to interview all of them as well and be like the live streaming VJ at South by Southwest when we launched our YouTube channel. So that was really some of my fondest memories were definitely working at Atlantic Records. I had wonderful staff morale and, um, you know, we, we used to hang out outside of work because we wanted to because we were all friends. It wasn't just like work colleagues. Wow, Gerge, what? My jaw. I need to pick it up <laughs> off the my floor. jaw because wow. We're sitting here like, wow. I am just that like so impressed. And I know there are going to be a lot of unsigned artists that are listening. What advice would you have for those unsigned artists or up and coming artists not to do on social media? Um don't post any if you think you're about to write something that's like questionable it probably is don't post <laughs> it <laughs> uh don't sexually harass people say or say anything racist yeah yeah I think like in the age of the internet where everything you can dig up anything you really uh it should give you a stronger filter of what you publish um, so be mindful of skeletons that may be dug up and used against you and use this time to really think about uh, if you're politically or, you know, yeah. just how you how the wording that you use and, and like 
your biases. So, um, you know, we're in like the height of cancel culture. Mm-hmm. So yes. I think that's really important. Uh, and I also think if you're an unsigned artist, uh, get a great manager. Get a really, really great manager, someone you trust uh, with your livelihood, because this is uh, someone who uh, really understands you, your vision as an artist and what's important to you, and that they can relay that and they can handle all of the business and administrative stuff, which really frees you up. Because I hear so much about people being like, how do I get signed? How do I get signed? It's like, yes. don't don't worry about getting signed. Let your manager worry about that. That's what they're for. They're there for. That's, you know, you should focus on being creative, understanding your your identity as a musician. Is it just you? Do you have an alter ego? Do you have a stage presence? What are you like on stage? Um, So I think it's more about focusing on the craft and like writing songs and being creative. And I think that good music and good songs always surface or I like to think so and let the business side and all the legalities and contracts be handled by a manager that doesn't mean you don't have to be involved it just kind of like protects you from kind of like getting sucked in on uh you know like how the sausage is made behind the curtain like let someone else deal with that just just make the music so when you were strategizing um content for musicians like a lord or Pearl Jam even, where do you begin with that marketing strategy? Yeah, like, what's the, mar- your first... the digital marketing strategy and, and how to start that campaign? Well, it's one component in a plan that is highly collaborative and you have to accommodate and work with and around timelines that are shaped by other teams. So usually that means at that, you know, at that point, that was radio the radio timeline, the first single that they're going to take to radio? Are they going to have a soft release of a single that doesn't go to radio just to kind of like whet the appetite of the fans and let them know that there's more music coming, you know, to satiate the press, um, to be like a fan favourite, like here's something for the fans and then the real radio single comes out. Um, You know, is there a big press look? Is there a TV look? Everything that I did was related and shaped by those other timelines. So we all kind of like collaborated together. So anything that I did would really roll off of that. So like if we knew that the first time, um, you know, the weekend was going to perform his new single was on SNL, then we had to make sure that we had a really buttoned up digital plan. So immediately uh, following that song or as he starts singing that song, if someone's going on Shazam or if someone's going on YouTube or someone's like Googling it, they're going to be able to find the song and know what it is and stream it or download it or pre-order the album or whatever it was. So it was a lot of that. It was a lot of, um, I think, coordinating. Um, But then when it comes to like creating digital specific content, um, the the starting point would be uh, understanding the vision, understanding the details and the theme of the album, of the campaign. So listening to the music, living with the music, understanding it, and then also having a conversation with the manager um, and learning their parameters that you have to work within. What are they comfortable with? What do they want to stay away from? Are they going to be really hands off? Do they not really want to be on camera a lot? They're not going to do interviews. Um, that 
everything would flow from there. So knowing the parameters in which you have to work makes everything else a lot easier versus continuously having random ideas and then throwing them to them and then being mm. shut down each time. So I found that was very helpful. Um, and at the same time, that helped shape when and where you would ideate and have, you know, outside of the box ideas and present them to them because they're more in, in line with their brand or, you know, what they're interested in. Um, so yeah, there was no one, uh, blueprint for any act. It was so, uh, highly, um, custom to each of them and what they liked doing and how they wanted, you know, Pearl Jam to Lord is so, uh, opposite ends of the spectrum, you know, Pearl Jam being a band that have been around for so long and it was their first album in many, many years. And Lord was, you know, she'd had this whole buzz off of Royals and we'd signed her and there's this mystery of like, who's the girl behind the cartoons? And so there was like a strong yeah. play on that, on her remaining quite elusive and not, not doing a lot of interviews. And, um, and it sounds like everything, I mean, everything is very collaborative. And like, I'm just genuinely curious, what are some of the things on your checkbox that like to be a good team member, to be present, to be on top of your shit? Like, what are some of those things that you're like, I have to get this done. I will be present in this way. Like, what does that look like for you as like someone in the industry? Um, yeah, I mean, you, you have to expect to be collaborative. And, and if you're someone who's not really a team player, it's probably not the place for you because quite often you're at the intersection of all the other teams and you're the one maintaining, you know, whether it's the timeline or keeping everyone on track or on a schedule or working towards a key date or a key launch. It's your responsibility to let each team know what's happening and at what pace as well. So um, you have to be really organized I think just like the fundamentals of like being very organized and on top of everything, um, being responsive, um, not taking things personally, which I think is quite difficult often because uh, working in the music industry isn't like a nine to five clock in clock out. You work at a bank or whatever it is. Um, it, it, it's far more involved than that. And you're working with highly creative people. So um, that's often unpredictable, you know, who you're picking up the phone to and how they're going to receive news that they may not want. Um, so you have to have a thick skin and understand that uh, it's not personal and to yes. not react with emotion. Uh, so if you feel like you're going to do that, take a breath, go walk around the block, step away from your computer, answer another email. Don't play into that because that snowballs and it never ends well. Um, and I think be nice and be open. Saying thank you and please has got me so mm. far in my career, just being like grateful and, yeah. and appreciative. Um, yeah. And, and also giving people the benefit of the doubt. You just don't know what anyone's going through on the other side. Yeah. And I think it's um, really, I found in my experience, it's really easy to misread tone in email um, yes. for things to get lost in translation. And even on phone calls, it's still a little bit awkward. So um again give everyone the benefit of the doubt and don't just kind of like I think there's a lot of like big egos in music and that makes it even more difficult but even more critical to kind of keep your cool and keep your eye on the goal and not get sucked into like politics or um you know 
having to have the last say of things going your way. Be prepared for things not to go your way and be prepared for whatever grand plan that you had written that you were trying to execute. You yeah. may have to scrap that and start over. So being nimble, um, I think, is really, really key as well because things change at really short notice and, you know, albums and songs are rush released and taken down. So you have to be able to kind of like, react and think on your feet and be organized and be able to also galvanize other people on your team. I feel like there's like this stigma within the industry that I've heard since getting involved that it's cutthroat. You've got to have thick skin. Like you've got to be confident, you know, don't react with your emotions. You know, you've you've got to kind of create this persona within yourself as a woman in the industry, even against other women. Can you kind of like how do you, how do you combat that? How do you kind of navigate that those type of situations when other women are just threatened? I think it's because there aren't enough women in executive positions or you know there's a fight that there's this sense that there are a finite amount of positions for women in music and so those that uh, are in a highly coveted spot have to like have a death grip mm. on it and no one else is going to come in and undercut me and like you know, yes, I think right. it's probably, yeah. you're you know so, what I mean? Yeah. And you're so, you're so fucking right. Like, it's like, we, like Michaela and I watch our um, composition. We very much watch the way we walk into a room. We watch the way we talk to people. We watch every single move because we know that it's going to be analyzed by the other team. And I think that it's very important to mention that it's okay to fuck up. <laughs> like, I think it's okay that like women yeah. don't have to be this wall every single time. Because I think that since there is this like, um, we're, notion. yeah, we're, we're learning, um, we're learning that we don't have to fucking apologize, you know, that we, yeah. we can be that wall and we can still support the other team as well. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of women would be, you know, are very quickly labeled as like, oh, that's a power bitch or she's really bitchy or she's really blah, blah, blah. And that's often, I think, mislabeled when a woman yeah. is perhaps on it being direct yes. and providing constructive criticism or is challenging someone or challenging the process to break something apart because they're confident that it can be done and executed in a better way. And that's critical, by the way, like um, surrounding yourself with people who are, who think exactly like you isn't a good thing. As much as you need a support system, you equally need a system or, or a group of people around you that are willing to challenge your idea and break yes. it apart because they want to make sure it's the best possible um, thing that they're going to put out there. Yes, you have to fight for yourself, but you also have to fight for each other as well. Right. That and there's is enough right. room for all of us. There is. Oh, yeah. Make absolutely. There is. I think that yeah. even if like, you feel threatened by someone, it's important to be friends with them and say, hey, like that's not a thing like that's not a thing anymore let's be let's be equal let's be partners let's lift each other up let's um how can I support you and how can you support me let's go to each other's gigs you know I think that um yeah and kill with kindness you don't have to like you don't have to be uh nasty in return and and also I think it's important to even before that take a step back and ask yourself uh are you threatened by someone else? Mm. What, what? Why is it? Is it why? your ego? Is, you know, dig a little bit. And why is it that you're uncomfortable? Kind of like confront yourself if you find yourself in that position as well. 
Yeah. Absolutely. And Gurge, in an ever-changing like industry that's always on the go, things are always evolving, what is something for you that you hope never, ever, ever changes in the industry? Oh, well, there's more things that I hope do change versus don't change in the in the music industry, to be Love really it. honest with you. <laughs> um, you know, I feel like the music industry is only, as many other industries, are only just waking up and acknowledging how much inequality there is, lack of diversity and representation of women or people of colour or, um, you know, people of colour or women in executive positions or CEO, C-suite level positions or on the board or acknowledging how much culture appropriation has gone on for years and years um, without rewarding the right people. So I hope that that continues to evolve and there's more acknowledgement and opportunities and fairness there. Um, one thing that I hope never goes away, and this is quite timely, is is concerts and shows because yeah, that's right obviously now. not happening right now. And, and uh, you know, I'm sure many other people share this, but I really sorely miss that. And I, I only realise now how uh, I actually took it for granted, especially in our field of work, because we have access to so many shows seven nights a week and get to go to incredible events that you're used to it. And so when it's taken away, you're like, oh, what? I can't just like pop to any show that I want to on a Tuesday or, you know, and, and that ex going to shows for me is really, really special. And I hope that that never changes because I've had the most profound experiences of my life going to concerts and going to shows up until, you know, even yeah. as recently as like now going, well, not now, but yeah. even as recently as last February, year going to yeah, shows. January. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I hope that that isn't um, hindered for too long by the current pandemic and that um, those sure. carry on because I think people, you know, it's uh, music is a really universal binding thing like nothing else. And it's, um, you know, important for people to be able to go somewhere and like express themselves and dance and, yes, and especially dance. as adults. Yeah, yeah. You don't get to do that. Yeah. Gerge, we're down to like our last few minutes, but I do just have a couple more questions for you. What would you tell young women like Alexa and I who are <laughs> idolizing you? What would you tell them coming up in the industry? What advice what would you watch have? out for? Yeah. Um, like how to hold yourself, stuff like that. I would tell them to do more of what you two are doing, doing this, exactly this, um, reaching out to uh, other women in in music to learn from them, to talk to them, to interview them. I think that's a really easy thing to do. And you may get a lot of, uh, you may not get a lot of responses. You may yeah. never hear back from a lot of people or you may be declined but there may be a few that come through and that's always always worth it so don't be discouraged or uh, you know disheartened by that uh get a mentor do what you can to establish a relationship with a mentor who you are talking to and um be transparent and upfront and clear on what you want out of that relationship um and and educate yourself uh there are so many resources and books and YouTube lectures and everything out there 
to help you you know if you're if you've just become a manager recently and you don't really know what to do there's plenty of material out there to help you but you can't I think you have to do as much of the research as what you're going to get from a mentor or talking to someone else as well so investing as much time um, of your own time into something um, and and also being confident comes from I think being just as vulnerable and like you said before it's okay to make mistakes and owning your mistakes and that's actually a critical part of learning um you know if everyone was doing everything right it just would you know another magic would happen yeah it'd be really boring um so yeah I think perfect as a concept yeah yeah exactly and like manage your expectations and be realistic I think that, like you said before, there's this myth of things being really glamorous and that's not the reality of it. And your disappointment is going to come from your own expectations. So um, be realistic and, and know that it's a, a grind and um, surround yourself with the right people as well. Yes. Um, I think it's I love that you said it's a grind. <laughs> Because it, it is. is. It truly <laughs> is. It's every day yeah. you wake up and you think about it and you think, how can I do better? And um, yeah. lastly, we want to know what's your gold moment? What is the moment that you were like, wow, I am so fucking proud of myself. I did this. I'm here. I can't believe I'm here, but I've worked for this. What's that moment look like for you? Oh, gosh. I think probably some of the most me- recent moments that I remember is uh, my time uh, at Pandora where um, I got to book artists for a lot of our shows. So whether it was our franchise shows, our summer holiday shows, or whether it was um, sponsored by you know a huge brand, uh, that was a lot of work. So identifying the right artists, using data and location data from our platform, working with the brand to make sure it's someone who's in line with, you know, what they're trying to represent and the, the demographic that they're trying to reach. And then at the same time, negotiating every part of an agreement with an agent for that artist and like fighting tooth and nail uh, for each line item yeah. in there. Uh, and then looking after the artist day of and making sure that we're getting content with yes. them and coordinating with everyone. So I was responsible for a lot of that. And I think a, a couple shows that I worked on that I'm still to this day really, really proud of, and that was very early on, was probably four years ago, maybe, um, the holiday, the Pandora Live holiday show that I booked in New York. It was 5,000 people in the audience, and I had booked Post Malone, uh, Scissor, and Ty Dollar Sign. It was right before, you know, Post Malone had, like, the biggest song in the world with Rockstar. Uh, and I've been, uh, a couple of people have challenged me on the booking selection of the talent. And I was like, you have to trust me. This is, you have to trust me. Cause it was booked six months out. And I was like, this guy's going to be like the biggest star in the world by the time this show happens. And he's going to be on our stage. And, 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 and he that was same week. Yeah. That same week, I think Rockstar was the number one song on our platform, on the charts internationally. And I just remember everyone like losing their shit in the audience and being like, oh my God, like I pulled it off. So I had, you know, I had a couple of those. Yeah. That that was definitely one of those three. Uh, another show was with Halsey that I just did in December uh, in Brooklyn, which was such a, a long, challenging road of um, just coordinating all the different elements. And, you know, that was in front of a few thousand people and she was so happy to be performing. So that was great. 
Um, and then more smaller shows on um, on a smaller scale at CES for many years. I was booking the acts for our um, big Pandora events at CES and the two years in a row or three years in a row, I kind of like knocked it out of the park. I was really, really proud of myself. And the first year was with TI. Um, it was an absolute party. And the second year was with Snoop. And then the third year was uh, with Lauren Hill. And it was just incredible to be able to work up close with all three of them uh, and then also see how happy everyone was and like dancing and just like lining up around the block to get in so it was really that's um, it isn't it yeah that's that that's moment it. yeah yeah it is bad that feeling of seeing, seeing people dressed up and and seeing them want to yeah want to support the artists that you've worked so hard to yeah put the show and having on a for. great time yeah. yeah and just yeah and supporting them that's the moment that's the end all be all huh it, yes. it's just mm. it's it's that support Gurge, where yeah. can people find you if they want to reach out to you? Where can they reach you at? Uh, I don't have any public-facing social profiles. I am on LinkedIn. I get a lot of messages on LinkedIn. So if you find me on LinkedIn, um, message me. If you want to email me, they could reach out to you and email me. I'm yeah. you know, happy to talk to anyone. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I have like facebook and twitter and instagram but for the most part i have that because i have to stay in tune with what's going on and because of work uh i'm not really saying or doing anything interesting on any of those to be lies. public facing you tell lies <laughs> you're so fucking cool <laughs> yeah whatever like you're so but, badass um, on this other end we're like we can't even believe that we have the chance to, to <laughs> hear the information so that you gave us so honored thank you yes thank, thank you. you so much thank for your time you. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. We've only just scratched the surface of what A&R truly entails. And we hope you walk away feeling just as inspired as we did and ready to take your career to the next level. Women and Music is bringing you the industry powerhouses who have stories, advice, and experience for days. Follow us on this crazy journey every Thursday. Peace out, Girl Scout.